I'm glad to be speaking with you this morning, uh, and David had asked me to come in and uh, sub for him this morning, and like Dr. Level always used to say, if you can't toot, you might as well substitute, and so that's what I'm doing today. I'm substituting for you, and uh, I teased David. I, I asked him where he was going. He said he was going to be on vacation, and I said, well, are, where are you going for vacation? And he said, well, we're going to the, uh, you know, out to the, to the farm in Lubbock, and I said, oh, you mean the place where they took the meter? And he said, yeah, the place where they took the meter. I said, so I guess you won't be watching the service this morning, will you? <laughs> he was, uh, we hope that he's having a great time there. Uh, he asked me to continue with the, the sermon series that he had going on Philippians. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to invite you to a seminary classroom to show you uh, the historical background. There's an amazing amount of historical material that's behind what the Apostle Paul is saying in our text that we're going to be dealing with in Philippians. We're going to be dealing in Philippians chapter 1, and I wanted to give you just a little bit of historical introduction, so I invite you to just pretend that instead of Sunday morning, that this is actually Tuesday morning, it's uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, and you have just started your New Testament intro class, and here we are talking about the Apostle Paul and journeying with Paul. The incredible background to Philippians is in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is that great deposit that Luke gives us, it gives us structure to the Apostle Paul and what he writes. And as I study the book of Philippians, I am ever more impressed how Paul takes advantage of the historical background of that particular city. And when Paul makes a certain statement, there's going to be in the mind of those that are listening a, a, an interaction. He'll say something and they will resonate with what he says instantly like maybe you and I wouldn't because we didn't share the same experience that Philippi had. And so since we didn't share the same experience, we're not going to have exactly the same reaction. For example, here in New Orleans, I mean, I could say Katrina, and already some of your stomachs are turning. Uh, there's just an immediate reaction that you have. Why? Because you experienced something together, and that word means something to you. And in the text that we have today, that's exactly what is going on. When Paul says certain things in our text, he's actually making allusions to the history of Philippi and the background of Philippi when he was there. So, I invite you to a seminary classroom and let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say uh, that comes out of this background. The Apostle Paul was on the second missionary journey. It didn't really begin at the beginning because he had had a fight with Barnabas. This fight with Barnabas put him out of the will of God. This fight with Barnabas meant that he really was wandering around. You know that because Luke tells us very clearly that he went through the southern regions of Galatia, as you see here. Those are the southern regions of Galatia, and he wanted to go to Asia probably Ephesus, and yet as Paul wanted to go to Asia, there's a question mark there because the, the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit stopped him. The Holy Spirit 
prevented him. So here's something that Paul wants to do, and apparently he doesn't have the mind of God on it. He didn't have a good quiet time that morning because he was actually out of God's will because he wants to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit says no. All right, then as the text in Acts continues, it's interesting because then Paul says, well, if I can't go left to Asia, maybe I'll go right up into Bithynia and Pontus. Those are provinces of the Roman Empire that were on the southern shore of the Black Sea. And the Holy Spirit once again said no. You remember how last Sunday, Pastor David made a point about the Spirit of Jesus told him no. And that is only one of two times that the Spirit of Jesus is used in the New Testament. And this is one of those times when he wanted to go to Bithynia The Spirit of Jesus told him no. So you have this strong reaction of the Holy Spirit to anything Paul wants to do, and he can't get himself together. He can't go backwards because that's Galatia. He's already been there on the first missionary journey. He can't go left because the Holy Spirit said no. He can't go right because the Holy Spirit says no. So what can he do? He's getting a lot of no's, so he just follows his no's. He just simply wanders forward. And he's wandering through the region of Asia, and Luke says Mycenae, which is a little bit further up. So he's wandering along, and what's happening here is that the Barnabas schism has actually left Paul drifting and without a mission mandate. The Spirit is resisting his every impulse. Here's an interesting thing about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Every time Paul is out of the will of God, he has to have a vision. Think about it. The Damascus Road, what is that? It's a vision. And where's Paul? He's fighting God. It's Saul of Tarsus, and he's persecuting the church. And what does he have to have in order to get him on track? He has to have a vision. And that's exactly what's getting ready to take place here. Paul is off track. There's no missionary journey yet. He's just getting no's from the Holy Spirit. He doesn't really have a yes yet. And so he's wandering through Asia and on through the territory of Mycenae and finally winds at Troas. And that's what makes Troas so important because at Troas, he has this incredible experience where he has a vision in the night. And as always, when Paul gets a vision, he finally gets on track. And that's what this video is about. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, 
a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. So this is what is called the vision of the Macedonian. And once again, it's a vision that gets Paul back on track. Here at Troas is where the second missionary journey actually begins in earnest. And his first stop is going to be Philippi. This is our city. This is what we are interested in this morning. And it's the history of Philippi that's going to be incredibly important for our passage. We, as we look at what Luke is doing, you'll notice in that text, if you heard carefully, that's actually the, the text being read and you heard a we we decided to go suddenly the text goes to first person plural very interesting we think that this is part of Luke's diary of this part of the journey and it goes to we because Paul is picking Luke up at Troas and you'll notice the we continues all the way through into Philippi and then drops out after Philippi so we think that Luke is probably from Philippi so they catch a boat at Troas, takes them two days. Travel in the ancient world it took a little bit longer than today, but they sailed from Troas, and that meant that they're moving from one continent to the next. So the Macedonian vision moves us from the Asian continent to the European continent, and as they set sail from Troas, they are making a journey with this wee section that Luke has joined them, and they're moving over to another continent. So it's a huge advance for the missionary work of the Apostle Paul. And they sail, take some two days, they pass by the island of Samothrace, and they arrive at Neapolis, which is the seaport for Philippi, a couple of kilometers on up the road, and they are in Philippi. Philippi originally was the Greek city Krenides, taken by Philip II of Macedon and renamed for himself. Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. Commercially, Philippi was important for the gold and silver that was mined nearby at Mount Pagion. In the 2nd century BC, a little later, Romans took the area and established the province of Macedonia. Philippi became a Roman provincial outpost on the Via Ignatia Highway, the main route from Asia to Italy. Famous battles were fought nearby in 42 BC that brought the defeat by the League of Antony and Octavian of the forces of Cassius and Brutus, co-conspirators who had murdered Julius Caesar. After these battles, discharged veterans settled in the area, and Philippi was made a Roman colony. The Roman veterans made Philippi heavily Roman, and the status as a Roman colony was a high honor. A Roman colony was a little Rome out in the provinces. Being a citizen of a Roman colony meant being a citizen of Rome. One had all the privileges, legal protection, and status of a citizen of Rome. One just simply did not live in Rome. Later, Octavian defeated Anthony in the naval battle of Actium in 30 BC forging together all Roman territories east and west, and went on to become the famous Augustus Caesar who founded the Roman Empire. After Octavian's victory, even more Roman veterans settled in the area of Philippi. Paul moved through Philippi on the second missionary journey recorded in Acts 16, about 49 AD, during the reign of Emperor Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54. Philippi was so Roman and so pagan that the city did not even have ten male Jews to qualify for establishing a synagogue. That is why Paul had to find the meeting place of those associated with Judaism, not in the city, but down by the riverside, where a few were gathered. There he met Lydia, the dealer in purple, who became his patron, offering her home as his lodging while he was in Philippi. 
That's the most important thing about Philippi is that it is a strongly Roman city and a military city. These veterans from these wars that were being fought between Cassius and Octavian and Antony are veterans settling Philippi. Philippi is like a military outpost, kind of like our, our military post. And so it's very military, very Roman because these veterans from the war are those who are settling in Philippi. So this is a highly Roman city, and it's a city that has not only a highly Roman background and culture also as well, this city is a, one of these kinds of cities that make them have special status. That is, they are little Romes. They are cities to themselves, and with this status as a little Rome, it means that if you're a citizen of Philippi, you are a citizen of Rome and you had all the rights and privileges that pertain to being a citizen of Rome. And so this is the kind of background city, and it's a great city to visit if you have the chance. Gene and I had the chance to be there. The excavations are interesting, and you get to even find the Via Ignatia. This would have been that main highway. This is their interstate tin that runs through town, so to speak. And that Via Ignatia has been excavated down to first century level and so I'm standing on stones that probably Paul and Luke and others traveled down. You can see the wagon ruts in the stone there and there's this theater there at Philippi and this is where we encounter that storyline of what's going on in Philippi. Ended at the seaport city of Neapolis which was the port of call for Philippi. Philippi was inland only a few kilometers up from Neapolis and Paul and company came to Philippi when they had many experiences as they worked in missionary endeavor at Philippi. Paul was able to convert Lydia at the riverbank. Philippi was a Roman colony, and so there was not a synagogue. There were not even enough male Jews here to establish a synagogue showing how Roman this town was when Paul was here. He converted Lydia and her household and they provided a place for Paul and his companions to stay while here. But while here, Paul also exercised a spirit out of a slave girl, and that exorcism caused the loss of business for the slave owners who were using her for a profit. And so Paul had created a problem, and they created a problem for Paul and had him thrown in jail. That was only another excuse for another conversion in which the Philippian jailer, after the earthquake and the uh, opportunity to escape for the prisoners was prevented by Paul and others, that created a, an unenviable situation for the jailer. He could have lost his life, and yet Paul gave him his life at the jail there, where Paul was not the one who was imprisoned, it was the jailer who actually was imprisoned, but he was released from the bondage of his own sins. And so here at Philippi, Paul was able to have a number of experiences. The theater dates to Roman times, and so we are actually standing in the spot where Paul and Luke and others probably passed through. 
So this is the Philippi that Paul is writing this letter to as he writes this letter of Philippians. So let's now turn to the letter of Philippians in chapter 1, and we will look at what Paul has to say to the Philippians as we look at Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 27. David's title for the sermon was Stand Firm, and this is what the text says. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of the Messiah in order that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I might hear the matters concerning you that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving together in one mind for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction to them, but of salvation for you. And this is from God because he graced you with regard to Messiah that not only you might believe in him but might suffer for him because you have the same struggles such as you saw in me and now you hear with me. It's most interesting that Paul starts off this charge that he gives here where he's going to say live worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of the gospel. That is the key idea that controls all of these dependent clauses that he's putting in the text, that he's going to give us information about how to live worthy. And he uses an interesting verb. He says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. That verb, live as citizens, that's all a verb in Greek, and it, it is an allusion to Philippi being a little room. And so when he says live as citizens, they know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about actually belonging somewhere where you not are, where you are not right now. You, you belong somewhere else. You live somewhere else other than where you belong. You belong to Rome, but you live in Philippi. And this live as citizens is a great metaphor for the Christian life because, in fact, you don't live here. Your citizenship is in heaven. You don't actually live here. You don't belong here. Your citizenship is really in heaven. Now, that can be two things to you. One, it could just simply be an abstract thought, or two, it could be a thought that drives your living, that drives how you live, that you belong to something else, that you have the honor of Rome on your back. When you lived in Philippi to maintain your status as a Roman city, with Roman citizenship, you had to live worthy of that status. You had to be a Roman to maintain that status. And when Paul is saying, live as citizens, he is telling those inhabitants of Philippi exactly what they already know. If they are believers, their citizenship is somewhere else. And they need to represent the honor of where their citizenship belongs. You belong 
to God. Your citizenship is in heaven if God has come into your life and made a difference for your life. If God's made that difference in your life, then your entire thought pattern is directed toward God in heaven, not here on earth. That's either an abstraction of thought or it's a real-life experience that you have, that you go through every day, that you don't belong here. Your citizenship is somewhere else. And these Philippians know this charge. Live worthy as citizens. Live worthy. And there are certain things where Paul is trying to talk about this living worthy, this gospel of the Messiah. Live worthy of the gospel of Messiah. Now, what he's saying there is there is a concrete pattern to how you are supposed to live. The concrete pattern is Jesus. That's why we have the four gospels. They are our guide to what we need to do and say in order to live worthy of our citizenship. We should be like Jesus. We should act like Jesus. We should think like Jesus. And the way that we have that information is in the Gospels. The Gospels tell us what Jesus thinks. The Gospels tell us what Jesus does. The Gospels tell us how we are to be because they give us the profile of our living on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how that plays out in Philippi, that always has consequences. When you're asking the question, what would Jesus do, it should change your life. If you ask that question tomorrow morning when you get up, your life should be changed. What would Jesus do? And if we really try to live on that principle of being worthy of the gospel, Jesus is the gospel, and we're trying to be worthy of Jesus. And if you ask that question tomorrow morning when you get up, your life should be revolutionized because Jesus gives us a pattern that is the pattern of eternal life, that destiny that gives eternal life, and it's going to have its impact on us. Live worthy, Paul says, of the gospel of the Messiah in order that whether I come and see you or I am absent, and I imagine David right now, he's not here this morning, and I imagine Apostle Paul not there at the church wondering how they're doing. I know David has been praying for us regularly all morning this morning. I know that David has us on his mind, and that's the Apostle Paul. He's not there, and he's wondering, how are you guys doing? How is it going Sunday morning? Robert, the sound system's not going great. Are you hanging tough? Are you hanging in? Tony, the sound system's not going great. Are you hanging tough? Are you hanging in? Are you hanging in with it? How are you doing? I know David is concerned about how things are going this morning. And I know Paul is concerned about how his Philippian church is doing. How are y'all doing? And there are certain things that he wants them to do. He says, in order that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, like David is absent this morning, I might hear the matters concerning you. David would like to hear these kind of qualities, that you are what? 
standing firm. Standing firm. That's an interesting phrase, standing firm. You wouldn't resonate with it. You wouldn't resonate with it, but a Roman military officer would resonate instantly with that standing firm. It's the same verb that is used in military camp for the various formations that the Roman army would take. For example, you have this kind of tortoise formation of the Roman army when they were besieging a city. They were most successful in repelling the rocks and the arrows that were coming upon them because they would take this tortoise formation or if there was a cavalry charge coming to them, they would take the stance. This is called the repel cavalry stance that these soldiers would take. And you'll notice the long spears in the front that would repel those horses. Those horses would not go into those spears. They would repel. And even if the horses did, they would be killed and the horses would be falling down on the soldiers. But the soldiers were supposed to stand firm. Because if you don't stand firm, the horses go through and everybody behind you is slaughtered. So it was an incredible word for a soldier to hear his commandant to say, Stand firm! The horses are coming! Repel cavalry! And you come together and you stand firm. You come together, and you stand firm. That's a military image. And that's what Paul wants his church to do. In the midst of opposition and persecution, pull together, make rank, stand firm. And then he says, Not only standing firm in one spirit, that spirit that makes that army stay together. He says, striving together in one mind for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. What an incredible verb that is used here. It comes from a verb that when we put it into English, we get our noun agony and our verb agonizing. It is the agon verb striving puts you in agony. It is the kind of labor where you leave your all out on the court. You put it all out there, and if you fall in defeat, it's agonizing. It makes my heart go out to these athletes in the Olympics when you see these incredible falls that they have. This is Alvaro Rodriguez in the 1500 meter qualifying, and he had one of the most spectacular falls in the 2012 Olympics, and his face afterwards is just agonizing. He was agonized over it. Also makes me think of Morgan Euseni, who was on the last lap of the women's 1500 meter final she was in the lead she had it and she stumbled they don't know what happened she's never stumbled before and she was in agony she had worked so hard for this moment and she agonized over that anything that's worth living for you have to agonize over. 
you have to agonize over your marriage. Anything worth living for, you have to agonize over. You have to agonize over your job. You have to agonize over relationships. You have to agonize with your family. Anything worth living for, you have to agonize. And if this church is worth it, if this church community is worth the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to agonize. You have to agonize, striving together, holding together, striving together in one mind for the faith of the gospel. And then Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is the Ides of March. That is the assassination of Julius Caesar when Caesar was assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. And that set up the great conflict between the four generals, Brutus and Cassius on one side and Octavian and Antony on the other side. And you had these four generals clashing in this huge battle right at Philippi. So the entire Roman world is coming to a head at Philippi. Four major Roman generals are struggling for the soul of Rome after Julius Caesar's assassination. And that struggle for Rome is right there at Philippi. After the assassination of the Ides of March in 44 B.C., not frightened by anything from your opponents. If you really agonize for the gospel, one thing's guaranteed. You will meet opposition. That's guaranteed. If you agonize for the gospel, if you actually have a witness, you will meet resistance. You will meet opposition. No sense of opposition? Devil has nothing to worry about because you're not striving together. You're not agonizing over the gospel of Jesus Christ. That opposition then is to be expected. And Paul wants to know that this church is dealing with that opposition well. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. They well know that even your best friend can be an opponent. Even somebody that goes to the Senate with you can be your opponent. Not frightened even by your opponents. That you're ready for anything because of Jesus Christ. Because why? Paul says, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. A sign of destruction is like what was inevitable for those conspirators of the assassination of Julius Caesar. A sign of destruction for them was simply that battle of Actium that was going to be fought. That was the sign of destruction because inevitably... You win by force and you lose by force. And so their very choice of how they're trying to conquer is their defeat. You don't win that way. Jesus Christ presents an entirely different 
paradigm of winning. You don't win by force. You win by love. You don't win by conquering. You win by dying. That's a strange picture of victory. A man hung on a cross, a Roman cross at that. A strange picture of victory. But that is the very victory of God, the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God is telling through Paul these believers in Philippi that even though your opponents are strong and even though they may take your life, even though they may throw you in prison, even though you are going to get opposition, that's not the end of it because they are not sovereign. Only God is sovereign. And so God will have the last word. And that's why Paul says, which is a sign of salvation for you, because that is from God, because God has guaranteed the result of anyone who follows Jesus Christ, that the victory that they will have is the victory of the cross. And then he says, because, why would I want to do this? Live worthy. What is that? Well, you are striving together. You are doing these kinds of things that pull you together. But why? Why do this? Because, Paul says, he graced you with regard to Messiah, that not only you might believe in him, but might suffer for him. He graced you with Messiah, that you would have the opportunity to believe in him. And that is the privilege that you have this morning. The privilege you have this morning is believing in Jesus Christ. And if you are listening to me and you're recognizing that this kind of living, this kind of powerful living is just simply not in your experience, you can know that if you made the decision this morning to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he would give you the power for life, not only for living this life, but for eternal life. And that by believing in Jesus, you would have eternal life. Because God sent his son into the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you could have that life even this morning. But there is a price to be paid. Oftentimes we say salvation is free. On the one side, that is true. On the other side, it is not. Salvation is free, but it is costly. Because Paul does say, not only that you might believe in him, but might suffer for him. Why? Because you have the same struggles such as you saw in me. Now, what struggles did they see in Paul? Well, when he was there in Philippi, he was in jail. He was dishonored by being thrown in jail because he had cast out a demon, a, a, a pythonous spirit out of a girl in, there in Philippi. And her masters lost their business and they lost their income as a result. The gospel changed somebody's life, but somebody lost an income. And they're not going to be happy about your messing with their business. So someone gets saved, but it changes somebody's business. That's what happened to Paul. And so he cast out the demon out of that girl, and those who owned her as a slave lost their income, and they had Paul thrown in jail. And so there's Paul thrown in jail because of his gospel testimony. 
and he's saying, which you saw in me, and that's what they saw, Paul and Silas in prison. And then he says, and now you hear with me. It's interesting that Paul is still in chains. He was in chains in Philippi, and when he's writing this letter, he's in chains. Now, that's an odd way to conceptualize a privilege. Oh, I got a good privilege for you. Guess what? You get to be in prison. <laughs> Guess what? You get to suffer for Jesus. But that is what Paul is presenting to this church. He's presenting to them the paradigm that he lived. He said, I showed you how I lived, and how I lived is how you should live. And that is the question for us today, and that is the question of how are you doing if here in New Orleans? Are we living as citizens worthy of the gospel? Is David going to hear that we're standing firm, striving together, not frightened of anything? Because we are living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in this time of invitation that we would find ourselves ready to dedicate our lives to living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we hear your word to us in such a way that you will change our lives. And as we have the opportunity to respond to this message, we pray that you would help us to live worthy of the gospel here in New Orleans, whatever that takes tomorrow morning when we get up and we go about our daily business. Help us to be thinking about living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.